Welcome to One and Done TV. I am your co-host, Ian Hamilton. And I am your relic from the 90s, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that were canceled after only one season. Isn't that right, John? That's right, Ian. We are browsing the aisles of tombstones, of the graves, of these shows that have been left behind, figuring out what they did, well, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. And today we are talking about Blockbuster, the Netflix one, not the retail one. But we'll talk about the retail one probably too. John, what have you been watching lately before we talk about Blockbuster? Well, I have not talked yet about The Last of Us because it was still going on and it just finished up. I actually haven't watched the finale yet. Wow. uh, I've been busy. Wow. Wow. I heard it was underwhelming and kind of a setup to season two, though. Well, whoever told you that is a pile of dog poopy because it is one of the greatest endings to one of the greatest. Well, no, I'm not going to say one of the it's the best video game adaptation that has ever existed in any medium ever. And Mm. I love the original Last of Us game and the way that they expanded on and were faithful to the original source material was astounding. I loved The Last of Us from top to bottom. It satisfied every single mushroom craving that I (laughs) could have possibly had. What have you thought of the season up to the finale? Oh, I loved it. I mean, I think it's a great show. I think that it has taken some emotional twists and turns that I didn't really expect. Um, I mean, definitely episode three, the Nick Offerman one was probably my favorite um, because that really was like a movie. Yeah. Um, And there have been really great episodes, but I guess I I don't know if it's uh, swooned me the way it has you just because to me, there's still a lot of things that are, Like, I don't know, just like The Walking Dead or zombie post-apocalyptic stuff. I think it is a great riff on that genre, and I think it has elevated the genre for sure. It's it's the best thing I've seen like that, but I also don't watch a lot of horror, you know, stuff. Um, The thing about it, though, is that it isn't like straight horror. Like, there's scary stuff in it, but it is so much about these two characters and pedro pascal is daddy and bella ramsey it is she's not mommy she is uh she's a 14 year old girl but she is fantastic the two of them together are so so incredible and as a fan of the game the way they built on troy baker and ashley johnson's voice work in that was without like spitting on their legacies. It was such a fine balance that they were able to create with this entire season. And last of us part two has a lot of haters. I am not one of those haters. I Mm. thought it was extraordinary and I cannot wait to see what they do with it. 
I listened to three different podcasts that recapped The Last of Us as the season was going on. I can't think of any other time that I've ever been this invested in a season of TV. Right, that you watch something and you just had to consume other people's takes of it. Yeah. Yeah. Until Blockbuster, J- JK, that didn't happen. <laughs> Ian, what about you? What did uh, what have you been up to? Because you've been at South by Southwest. I have been a very busy boy. Uh, I saw the premieres for Lucky Hank, which was the Bob Odenkirk AMC series that's coming out. Uh, it's really good. It's a great character for him. Um, you know, it's neither super funny nor super dramatic, but it is a solid show. And I hear the book is really good as well. It was created um, by Paul Lieberstein, too, of The Office, yes, right? Yes, co-created. Yeah. And he was uh, at the premiere as oh, well cool. as Bob Odenkirk. And uh, he's just like Toby, you know. <laughs> See, but they didn't do like a Q&A with the audience. So I, I wish I could have. I don't know. I'm kind of a Q&A guy. I always have a question ready. Uh, when the credits start rolling. So I would have liked to have asked them something. I don't know. I had something ready to go, but I can't remember it now. Uh, I so you also, just resorted to violence then, right? Yes. The stateside theater is no longer there. It is in rubble. <laughs> I also saw the premiere of Love and Death, the Elizabeth Olsen, Jesse Plemons show. It's a limited series. Uh, that was really good. I didn't realize it is based on a true story that revolves around an axe murder. But uh, just watching the pilot, you wouldn't know that. But it was really good. I'm looking forward to whatever the next six hours of it are. The two of them are fantastic. They are some of my favorite working actors. Elizabeth Olsen is so haunting and powerful. And Jesse Plemons is Jesse Plemons. So... I'm very, very excited about that. Yeah. And what was kind of crazy was Jesse Plemons was at the Q&A and he's lost probably 100 pounds Whoa! between filming the show and the Q&A. So to watch him on the screen and then to see him walk out was actually kind of shocking. For a guy with such a distinctive look, he is kind of a chameleon like that. You know, he really can shift his shape into different roles and he has different levers that he can pull in terms of his physical status in a project that he's working on. He plays characters that don't talk much very well. Yes. Right? Like, he just kind of tilts his head like a curious dog and then looks at the camera or the other character some kind of way, and you're like, wow. The fact that he could survive the first half of season two of Friday Night Lights and come out and one of the greatest actors of his generation is impressive because those first few episodes of season two of Friday Night Lights are a disaster. Wow. I was going to say ditto to that with Fargo season two until you said the disaster part. Um, <laughs> also, I watched an indie TV show that is looking for distribution called Shatterbelt, which is kind of a social commentary, rich versus poor, mind melding sort of show where one of the episodes has Pat Oswalt in it. Um, but uh, so we saw episode two through four, and Not I'll just one? say. 
No, it was it was kind of weird like what? that. I don't, I don't know. It was like a scheduling thing for them. <laughs> um, for all I know, they're still editing it, but who knows? It's looking for distribution too. So gotcha. You know who knows what's going on with that. But uh, like the first episode we watched is about a production company that buys this Apple that for one reason or another, this Apple has sat on a counter for months, never aging. And also no one can touch it. Like physically you could touch it, but an excuse always comes up so that nobody can physically touch the Apple. And they're trying to like take advantage of this internet sensation that everyone is consumed by. And also, argue about if it's so easy to touch them why can't you touch it it's kind of a mind meldy show like that and uh uh, i wouldn't give it five stars but it was very interesting and definitely worth checking out whenever it comes out Um, well sounds like something i want to take a bite out of and i think we should take a bite out of blockbuster by saying it's showtime five four Three, two, one, showtime! In 2022, Netflix made a show about a company that laughed them out of the building when they proposed a buyout in the year 2000. Two decades later, audience and critics alike were not laughing inside or outside of any building as Blockbuster was canceled after only 10 episodes. And I believe it was canceled like two months after it premiered. That sounds right, right? Sure. You're the one that did the research. Well, that's true. <laughs> I just forgot to look up exactly when it got canceled, but it came and went pretty, pretty quickly. Um, So this show was created by Vanessa Ramos, who it is her first time she's ever created a show. She's a veteran TV and comedy writer. Uh, she has a really interesting career arc, John, because she started out as a stand-up in L.A., then got hired to write for different roasts, like the roast mm. of Roseanne Barr was her first gig. So she uh, talked about that, which was pretty interesting. And then she was a big fan of Greg Giraldo, and uh, then she got hired to write on At Midnight, and she is a self-proclaimed joke dork, mm. which... Makes a lot of sense. It does after watching Blockbuster, definitely, yeah, yeah, because Blockbuster is a show that is jam packed full of jokes. Um, But so it it makes sense that she started out writing just like one liners, right? Mm -hmm. And then her first foray into sitcom writing was on an animated show, actually called uh, Border Town. Pretty sure I'm getting that right, but it was like a Comedy Central show about a border town in Texas, which she's from Texas. Mm -hmm. And then she went on to work on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Superstore, and Keenan before being given uh, the rights to Blockbuster and then being told, hey, you write for workplace comedies. Can you write (laughs) a workplace comedy about Blockbuster? That's interesting because, yeah, I was looking at some of the executive producers for this show, one of them being uh, David Casp, who did Happy Endings, which Mm -hmm. I thought the joke a minute sort of style might have been present from him. But the fact that she was writing for roasts and stuff, that makes a lot of sense, too. But he also created Keenan. 
too right. with Keenan Thompson. So and I, I believe it was him that actually had the rights to Blockbuster and oh, then passed it along to her. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of rights to Blockbuster, man, what a journey that company went on. You have not seen the documentary, The Last Blockbuster, right? No, I didn't. So that's a different documentary that's on Netflix. Not a Netflix documentary, but they licensed it. And it is about essentially kind of what the show is about. The show starts with Randall Park, who is the manager of a blockbuster in Michigan. And we find out very early on that this is the last blockbuster as corporate has been liquidated. So this is very much based on something that similarly happened to actual Blockbuster. And the last Blockbuster, I believe, is still running in Bend, Oregon. And the last Blockbuster, the documentary, sort of chronicles the years from like 2017 through like 2020 as they went from being one of the last seven to one of the last five down to literally the last one. And... There is so much interesting history that sort of went into the rise of Blockbuster. Do you know how many stores there were around the country, Blockbuster stores there were around the country at its peak? In just the country? You know what? I'm going to guess something crazy and say 7,000. 9,000. Wow. 9,000 at its peak. They were saying that at its highest point, there was a new Blockbuster opening somewhere in the world every 17 hours. Oh my God. Yeah. So this thing was getting franchised and it's such an interesting kind of corporate story too, because for the longest time, Blockbuster was seen as the monopoly that was eating up all of the smaller mom and pop family stores. And me and you lived a block away from a blockbuster for most of our lives. You know, I think the listeners know that you and I have been friends for a long time and we grew up literally a block apart for the, from sixth grade, right? That's when you moved. Yes. Sixth or seventh grade. So it's, it's interesting because growing up, we went to family video and sometimes even Hollywood video. But when I moved by you, we had the blockbuster right there. So that be, you know, I could just walk to rent a movie. So what are your memories then of going to Blockbuster? Dude, it's so funny that you bring that up because uh, when I was doing research for this episode and trying to find interviews with the cast and the creator and stuff like that, that's all the interviews started out with. Like, yeah. So what are, what are some of your favorite memories about blo- browsing Blockbuster? It's such a... I knew it. The second I like felt the words escaping my mouth, I was like, I might as well be on Access Hollywood no. right now. No, no, no. I think for our show, it's fine. I think for interviewing people that were involved in the show, it's annoying and kind of superficial. Because for me, one of my biggest memories from Blockbuster is me and you finding Clerks, the animated series on the shelves. <laughs> yeah. That sounds about right. Because... I have such like fond, vivid memories of me and you. We would 
usually go to Best Buy, actually, but we would go to Blockbuster as well because the two were very close to each other. And like Tuesday afternoons after school, yes, we would go to the places just to see what the new releases were. And right. literally walking the entirety of the shelves, especially the Blockbuster, where you would just walk the complete outside of the store because that's where the newest releases were from A to Z. And that's how I got so acclimated with so many movies, even if I never saw them, just from the literal cover of their VHS or DVD box art. Yeah, we uh, we talked about that a bit on on the Mr. Bunker episode that we guested on, how mm-hmm. like we may not have seen the movie, yeah. but if you're telling us about something that came out, you know, pre-2010, we at least know the cover uh, or the the poster of the movie. I think that it's also responsible for my love of some older movies like renting Groundhog Day. Mm. It's something that I remember renting because it was like a dollar or something (laughs) like that. And then I watched it and then I watched it with the commentary and I watched all the bonus features and everything. So then I bought it. And then I watched it with commentary with Harold Ramis, like probably five to 10 times for some reason. Mm -hmm. But it was responsible for like the bargain bin there or whatever like sale was going on, I think was responsible for my love of some older movies for sure. Mm -hmm. At least again, your familiarity with what they were, because you seemingly had the entire breadth of cinema in one location even Mm -hmm. if you didn't tap into it so it does have this huge fondness in my heart but going back to kind of my original point this was sort of the monopoly and now especially as it's positioned in this show this is the small business that is struggling to hang on yes and that creates a completely different narrative for blockbuster but when you think about like what they were at their height to, you know, 9,000 stores, you alluded to it in your intro. Netflix offered $50 million to let Blockbuster buy them out, presumably, back in like the early 2000s. And Blockbuster said no. Mm-hmm. And now Netflix is coming back with this like semi middle finger of a sitcom, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it's. A loving portrayal of Blockbuster, Yeah, though. kind of. But then I mean, it also, we'll get into it, but <laughs> the location of Blockbuster in terms of like the streaming platform that it is on is a peculiar one at best. Oh, it was very strange to see it pop up on Netflix because I think we've talked about this a bit before, but... If you went to Blockbuster and they didn't have the movie you were looking for, which happened quite a bit, actually, because Mm -hmm. it's kind of like they had the same movies sitting around forever and then they just had the new movies, uh, you know, in on a rotation. So there were plenty of specific things you wanted to see that they never had. And then you and your dad, you know, your household was the first one I knew that had Netflix where... You could order DVDs online and they'd ship to you in the mail Mm -hmm. and then you could watch anything you wanted. It was incredible. It was 
such a shift in uh, our watching experiences because all of a sudden, pretty much anything was available to us. Mm -hmm. And my dad is a purist and is a brand loyalist when it comes to two entertainment brands that he got in on the ground floor on. One of them is Netflix. The other is TiVo. My dad still has TiVo. Yes. He loves TiVo. Power to you, Tommy. (laughs) When's that TV show coming out? When's the TiVo show? (laughs) I think the sound effects would be too annoying to make for any sort of sustained entertainment. You're right. It's going to be a podcast. Yes. That's just full of... I think it could be like a ASMR channel on Twitch or something. That's right. Actually, I now have to see if anyone has made any sort of soundscape remixes just using the TiVo noises because I bet we could get a lot of hits. Oh, yeah. There's got to be. So, John, before we jump into the characters exactly in the premise of the show, I do want to say that this is starring Randall Park and it was written for Randall Park. So originally the show was just supposed to be, okay, it's a workplace comedy. We have a set, write a show for this set, basically. We know where it'll be. And so uh, when Vanessa Ramos wrote the show, it was in the height of COVID. She had Randall Park's voice in her head for the main character. And then she wrote all the other characters. Basically, they came out of missing her family and friends. Mm. And so a lot of the characters are based on people that she knows very well and just really want wish she could hang out with, but but couldn't at the time, which mm. is pretty which is a pretty cool origin. And then That's sweet, yeah. When they were casting, they sent it to Randall Park and he immediately was in. Then it went from a smaller show to like the budget ballooned mm. and they could do a lot more of what they wanted. That was really interesting because Randall Park is, he's a bigger name definitely in TV, but mm-hmm. um, I didn't know that his name had that kind of power. Yeah, I think it does, especially now. I mean, he is not only a star of his own movies, you know, he's part of the Marvel cinematic universe. He, True, true. The romantic comedy Always Be My Maybe with Ali Wong, which was a huge hit for Netflix too. So he had that relationship with them. So I get it. I get it. And he is a really charismatic presence, I think. He, especially in this role of Timmy, who is the small business owner of, you know, a blockbuster franchise. And it has this sort of arrested development about him where, you know, he still has roommates. He is tied to this job he's had since high school. He doesn't really understand responsibility. And then when the blockbuster becomes the last blockbuster, he needs to sort of own up to that side of his burgeoning adulthood as a 40-year-old. Right. He has to go very quickly pivot from being manager of a store to a small business owner and that is very much um where the season of the show takes us is on his journey from just kind of managing employees and the logistics of you know what dvds go on what shelves to all of a sudden you know needing to find funding and keeping the store afloat and he does that all with his coworker eliza who he went to high school with and has a crush on. 
but she's married, John, but her husband cheated on her. So there's a little bit of an odd will they, won't they pining after each other uh, for for most of the season, right? Mm-hmm. And she's played by Melissa Fumero, who was on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So again, it really seems like when you listed off those credits that Vanessa Ramos was just kind of pulling at these connections and uh, tying the pieces together. And I'm a huge Melissa Fumero fan. I mean, the entire ensemble of Brooklyn Nine-Nine is in a high, high place in my hearts in terms of what they can bring to ensemble comedy and Melissa Fumero is no exception. But yeah, Eliza, in addition to having this kind of weird relationship with her husband to Timmy, she is a Harvard grad who is still kind of finding her feet and is tied to this job and is kind of looking elsewhere, but still has this pull back to the blockbuster, I think, because of her relationship to Timmy. But she is sort of the right hand of Timmy and the one to try to push him into this small business owner role. That's right. And then the other characters in the show are, for the most part, employees. We have Carlos, who's a film buff. He's studying to be an accountant, but wants to direct. And um, we have Connie, who's an older Hispanic woman who works at the store. We have Hannah, who's raised by her trucker dad and a homeschool graduate and proud of it. Uh, She's very stingy with money, but she was, you know, she was raised poor, I think, by a Mm -hmm. single dad. She's also kind of prone to believing anything she reads online, right? And then we have Kayla, who basically her function is to be the Gen Z girl who knows how to use phones and is also the daughter of Percy, played by J.B. Smoove, who owns the mini mall and also happens to be Timmy's best friend. Yeah. <laughs> wow, you rattled through those characters and did a fantastic job at it. Thank I you. I do want to give two special shout-outs. The guy that plays Carlos mm-hmm. is one of the leads in American Vandal, both seasons of that. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And that's truly one of my favorite comedies of the last decade. Even season two, huh? I love season two of... American Vandal. It's darker, but I think it's really interesting. I rewatched I it, it too. recently. I just yeah. I didn't finish it. It's a good reason. one to go back on. And there's a couple people from that show that have gone on to do more stuff, including him. And the woman who plays Connie, Olga Morades, who is again someone who holds a very special place in my heart. She originated the role of Abuela Claudia in In the Heights, both on Broadway and oh, she wow. was in the movie. And for those that know me, In the Heights is the musical I've seen more than any other show. It's Lin-Manuel Miranda's big musical that he did before Hamilton. And it's such a near perfect show. I was actually at the closing night performance of In the Heights and saw her do her big number one final time. And the entire audience just freaking erupted. And it's just so seeing her on screen definitely makes me feel that nice little like butterfly in my heart tying me back to those fond memories. Right. And then um, I feel like I forgot to mention Carlos also is kind of bi pansexual. That's like a big part of his uh, 
I don't know. You know, everyone's got something to say about that. There's a whole episode about it. You know, we'll talk about <laughs> it later. And Connie is really based on Vanessa Ramos's mother, she said. I could see that. There seemed to be a lot of specifics about that character, like her love of figurines, her love of puzzles. And right. Connie is, as he had said, older. And she talks about like why she works there. And it seems to be sort of her emotional support. She mm-hmm. likes to be around people. She likes to take on that kind of matron figurehead in that way, too. So the knowing that she is tied to Vanessa Ramos in that way, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And we can talk about the story and the highlights of the show right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. Highlight. John, to start the highlights, I actually think we can go a little bit deeper into these characters because the show's a workplace comedy. It all takes place in a blockbuster. Timmy, the entire season, is running around trying to find love and trying to keep the business afloat, right? Mm Mm-hmm. He's always looking for little bits of money here or there. He's also kind of being chased around a little bit by J.B. Smoove's Percy character. And they've got a weird dynamic, too, because Percy and Timmy are really good friends. But Percy is also Timmy's landlord. And so there's that pressure of, you're my buddy, but where's that money? There's also a little bit of a disconnect because I think we're supposed to believe J.B. Smoove and Randall Park are the same age. <laughs> I, I we think are, they're yeah. like talking about high school and stuff. And I'm like, wait, does that mean Eliza is also the same age as J.B. Smoove? Because I know he's way older than them. Oh, yeah. I had no idea how old Eliza was supposed to be. I mean, I think Melissa Fumero is maybe in her late 30s and they're talking about how she already has a daughter in college. Yeah, exactly. So there were a lot of details in the first couple episodes that I felt like by the end of the season when we knew their characters better didn't totally make sense. I don't know if it's completely important, though. One of the details that I did appreciate is, did you catch the name of Percy's Party Shop? Is it Percy's Party Shop? No, it's Party 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 spelled three different ways in the same ways that the band (laughs) Tony, Tony, Tony is. Oh, my God. That was one thing that Vanessa Ramos talked a lot about in any interview I listened to her in was uh, just how many jokes they tried to pack into the background. Oh, yeah. And like little things that I didn't even notice, like anytime there was a news report, it was always a different anchor filling in for the last anchor who was busy. I clock that. The They always talked about how uh, the anchor Remington Alexander was on vacation. And then in the last episode, Remington Alexander appears and he's like, this is Remington Alexander back from vacation. And J.B. Smoove's character just 
off camera goes, finally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there were a lot of little jokes thrown in there that um, I think hampered the development of the characters sometimes until we finally really got to, to know them when, you know, the first part of the season, it's like, hey, the business is in trouble. But then we're at the business and we have storylines um, like Carlos trying to help Hannah, who is not spending money on anything. She's eating like watered down peanut butter on a tortilla or something like that. And he is trying to teach her what self-care is by being like, spend a little money on yourself once Mm -hmm. and that is a whole episode yeah i mean it's the whole b plot of an episode but yeah it's a it there's a solid eight or nine minutes dedicated to that one joke premise exactly and i feel like every episode has a b plot like this like one of them is connie trying to figure out carlos's sexuality which starts with a discussion about carlos's type which leads to him being like, I don't have a type. I'm uh, attracted to people's souls. And then he, he talks about one of the examples is being attracted to Brad Pitt and Benjamin Button, but only when he's old. Yes. Uh, he also talked about Tyler Perry, but only as Medea. Right. And that he also is attracted to Tessa Thompson, but only if she was in a Rita Ora and Taika Waititi thruple. Right. Right, which was a big, big news story about a year ago. So <laughs> I thought they uh, dealt with his, you know, pansexuality or whatever it is, like pretty well. Like, I thought they did a good job of making it fun and funny while leaning into being sensitive towards other people's con- confusion or yeah. maybe other people's confusion was sensitive enough towards it. I don't know. I thought they did a decent job with it. I agree with that. Yeah, normally that sort of storyline is like, but what is he? But it wasn't about what is he. It was kind of coming from this place of love for the character in terms of trying to find somebody to set him up with. Right. So in understanding his type, they were trying to find people that would connect with him. And then they ultimately land on when they sort of run the gambit of all the people that he has been attracted to and they try to connect the dots. It's like, oh, you're only interested in people who are obsessed with themselves. Which exactly. I thought was a good revelation. Yeah. Oh, and Connie had a funny example of like, she was like, I dated five mall Santas until I realized that I just like dating people who hang out at malls or <laughs> yeah. now it was funnier than that. Uh, it was something like that though. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of Connie and Carlos or like one episode is uh, Connie, her friend dies and their Hannah and Carlos are trying to find another old person friend for her. Mm -hmm. That is close enough for her to hang out with because there is another friend, but she's 45 minutes away and that's way too far. Right. And uh, also she needs to find someone that, specifically likes the telenovela she likes, which has 20 years worth of seasons, which is yeah. actually 60 seasons. Because there's three... three seasons a year. Right. And, you know, by the end of it, they finally find her another old person friend who's like, I like TV shows, but only ones that take years to invest in the character and the story arcs. 
they're like, oh my God. So that is generally the B-plot setup with the A-plot usually involving Randall Park trying to find some way to save the business or nurse the wound that is his crush on Eliza or in some cases finding his own romantic entanglements too. So Right. At one point he is, I think, tricked into going into a four person date right because uh the mechanics of that uh uh setup were very confusing yeah because it was one of those things where a a lot happens off screen in this show um and one of those things was that kayla took over his tinder profile and he went out with a date on a date with someone that he met in person but then her and jb smooth used his Tinder profile to be very aggressive and asking three other women to show up at a bar that he's already on a date with. Yeah. At four. With two. Because. (laughs) There we go. Some combination of prepositions. Right. Why things happen in the show isn't always exactly clear because everything happens so fast agreed there is a pretty manic energy to the developments around the store and the characters and even though it is a netflix show that is mostly serialized it does still have that sort of traditional network sitcom here's a problem that we're going to solve on minute 23 of a 24-minute episode. Right. But even um, Vanessa Ramos talked about how because it's Netflix, she had to have cliffhangers at the end of the first three episodes specifically, Mm. um, which were mostly like business-related cliffhangers. Usually like like, the rent is due. Right. Or, um, yeah, it's usually Randall Park owes money to J.B. Smoove, I think, or... Something like that. Right. It's it's little stepping stones that you can launch the next episode off of. It's not mm-hmm. something too dramatic because it's a comedy. But because it's Netflix, you have to use that storytelling model, which I thought was pretty interesting to hear. I thought so, too, especially because, you know, in the so many conversations that we've had about shows on streaming services, it really seems like the greatest metric that you could have for success is somebody finishing an entire season of TV, Mm -hmm. however large that audience is. So to have that kind of inside knowledge about the way that it needs to be incorporated just in the story structure, I think is very interesting. Um, Let's talk about Eliza's supposedly terrible husband for a second. Thank you for saying supposedly. Okay. Because I had issues with how this was presented. As well, you go off, King, and then I'll let's do it. Let's do it. I'm putting on my crown, I am wearing my robe. There are some frills to it. Let's get going. So, Eliza's husband is supposed to be this horrible guy who cheated on her, and they only really stayed together because of their daughter. And this guy is really quote-unquote, trying his best to connect with her and meet her halfway. 
And that is what we hear about this guy when he's not there. But what they did for the show was they cast a pretty charming and harmless dude who, when he's on screen, is only nice to her. So what we are seeing is a guy who is flawed, but only flawed when we don't see him. Right. Uh, Off screen, he's supposedly very basic. She wants to go on a date night and... You know, she's on the phone and it's just a one-sided conversation. And it's something like, I know that Buffalo Wild Wings doesn't have a dress code, but I don't think you should be wearing your soccer cleats to our date. Yeah. You know? Or, oh, he wanted to go to this restaurant because he liked that they had the beer that had the mountains on the side of it that turned blue when it gets cold. Right. But then in that exact same scene, when that guy shows up, he's like, you know what? I can get those beers any other time. How are you doing? And it just felt like this weird dichotomy where almost as if the actor who is playing the deadbeat husband didn't want to be a deadbeat husband. And so he improvised his own sort of counteractions to the things that they were writing about him when he wasn't there. Yes. The disconnect was real between seeing him and hearing about him. Hearing about their tough times in the relationship is what, you know, drives the whole will they, won't they with uh, Timmy and Eliza. And it was kind of interesting. I feel like this is the second or third show we've watched um, recently where there's a will they, won't they between a couple that like one of them is married uh, mm. or in a real, oh, uh, yeah, like little voice, right? Right, yeah. There, the main character was into a guy that had a girlfriend and they were flirting and kind of dealing with that. And I was like, maybe we've just come so far with the will they, won't they, that we, we just have to have everybody cheating now in order to make <laughs> it interesting and we have to be sympathetic to them wanting to cheat on somebody. Exactly. You know? And I wouldn't have minded so much if they leaned a little bit harder into him being the guy that she describes him as. And maybe that was in an attempt to sort of make that relationship more complicated because they definitely allude to that a lot too. Like there are these things where, for example, one of the last episodes, Eliza's husband wants to sort of recommit to their relationship. And so he is instructed by Hannah actually to make a grand romantic gesture, which turns into like a reproposal. And what we hear about sort of how poorly conceived that idea is, is somebody telling Hannah, I don't know if that's such a good idea. It seems a lot more complicated than that. So I think they had that sort of underlying motivation of, well, we are seeing different sides or maybe just a limited view of what this relationship is. There might be more to it outside of what we are seeing on the screen, but the way that they presented it didn't feel, as you said, connected as well as I think it could have been. Absolutely. Um, I'm taking my crown off now. I am no longer the king. Get off that throne, too. That's 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 too much. It's stiff. It's stiff. You're right. I it just it's done just a train wreck on my lats. 
Oh, I bet. I like Ugh. that saber though. That's pretty nice. Um, it's specially engraved. Of, yeah. Yeah. Give me a Christmas gift. You know that. <laughs> Uh, a couple other highlights I wanted to point out, if these are interesting to you or not, was uh, like they spend a bit of time on Carlos's, uh, you're going to school to be an accountant, but you want to be a director um, story arc. I liked that in the, I think last episode, he applies to this directing grant or fellowship or program or something it's like called that like emerging filmmakers or something like that right and what i really wasn't looking forward to was the season two where he gets that uh gets into that program and then yeah. we're following his trajectory to be a director but then a refreshing thing was that he didn't get into that program right and i was like that that is what it's like to be in the arts. Well, and they make a whole monologue of that, too, of how every person in Hollywood has some struggles at the beginning of their career. Congratulations, you're a Hollywood filmmaker. You're just not there yet. Right. Um, another interesting storyline was Hannah's mom passed away in a mysterious way that we don't know about, <laughs> that her dad... Yeah doesn't like to talk about and then just drinks a beer or something whenever it comes up. He drinks a beer and then goes for a four hour walk. That's so she right. doesn't know how her mom died. Um, And so this whole episode, Carlos and Connie, I think, I don't think Kayla is a part of this episode. No, I think it's Connie. Kayla like dips in and out very weirdly. I think there's probably a solid four or five episodes where one of the main characters is not in it. Actually, so Kayla and J.B. Smooth are only in eight episodes. The rest of the characters are in all ten. Okay. I but don't me, know why. Because yeah. for J.B. Smooth, you figure it's probably he's got something else filming, you know, be it a Spider-Man or a Curb. But I don't know why <laughs> Kayla, they randomly left out of two episodes. Kayla is an employee at the Blockbuster, so it makes sense for her to be part of that ensemble. I will say this definitively. I hated Kayla. As a character, I think <laughs> she did not work for me because I counted and I when I sort of picked up on this, I was really sort of clued into it a little bit. But almost every line out of her mouth was something negative. Mm. And it just didn't really, I think, gel with the rest of the vibe that that ensemble was creating. And I don't fault the actor for that. I think they just wanted, like you said, that sort of Gen Z oh, this is so stupid attitude to it. But I think they could have smoothed that out a little bit better because as it was portrayed, she was just somebody that would, at one point, she literally walked into a scene on her phone, knocked over something that somebody was working on, was like, oh, why was that in my way? And I'm like, why are you here, Kayla? Right. She was mostly a function to give J.B. Smoove's character some conflict because yeah. he's his dad, but he's divorced from her mom. And she calls him by his first name all the time. And, you know, it also, I think at one point, Randall Park needs to fire someone. And, you know, it would affect him and J.B. Smith's friendship if, you know, he he has to fire Kayla, but he can't, you know. And then I think J.B. Smoove ends up paying for part of his lease in order to not fire his daughter so he can remain closer to her. I don't know. It was uh, some of the convoluted story that the show had 
produced that uh, was conflict for the sake of conflict that didn't fit in with the warmer storylines that they had. Motivations were muddled in order to drive plot. Oh, but we never talked about Hannah's mom because there's a whole storyline of Carlos and Connie getting really into this murder documentary and thinking that her mom was murdered by this famous murderer, but then she isn't. I I thought that was a weird storyline. I just wanted to call it out. That's a fair one to call out. Yeah, there are some sort of weird things where you know, a character would go down a rabbit hole of potential information only to be disproven in the final couple minutes of the episode. And I think you could do that, especially to a character like Hannah, whose her function is essentially to be the one that doesn't really know everything that's going on all the time. And I like that she's not dumb. She's just kind of clueless about sort of where she is. Like... I think one of my favorite Hannah bits was that when, again, in that episode where they were talking about who to fire, Hannah's name came up as a person, a potential person. And when they're talking about her, she comes in and she says, so I accidentally sold a copy of Human Centipede to a teacher who was trying to rent the Hungry Caterpillar. And now I've got the superintendent who's just kind of yelling at me. So much that I don't really know what he's saying. And then when she's done with that, because she's got the phone receiver in her hand, she just puts the phone receiver down on the floor in the middle of the office where Randall Park is working and then walks away as you hear the superintendent yelling over the receiver. Well, we can hear our audiences yelling at their headphones right now, John as they can't wait to know if we would renew or not. So we'll take a quick commercial break and come back with that. And then some Dunzo Awards. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Ian again. And I'm going to do something that I don't think you're used to your podcast hosts doing, but I'm going to lecture you. Okay, because I see you out there. I know where you are. I know what you're doing. Well, you're listening to a podcast, but you're out there in Nottingham. You're out there in Cleveland. You're out there in Boston. You're out there in Finland. You're out there in Israel. You're out there in the Azores. And you're out there in some places in Lithuania I can't pronounce and all over America. And guess what you're not doing? You're not reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. I mean, giving us a review on Spotify and everything else is great, but let's be honest here. I need you to review this on Apple Podcasts. That is, of course, unless you don't like it. Okay, back to the show. Well, we rented Blockbuster for a full 10 episodes, but... I got to ask, if season two were on the shelf, would you pick it up? Would you renew? I would not renew, John. And I don't think that's a surprise to you, right? Nah. You watching it, you didn't expect me to do that. Um, It's a pretty classic gripe of mine of 
too many jokes. The jokes took away from the personalities of the characters. I think it took me a solid five, six, seven episodes for me to really understand who each individual character was. Actually, my biggest problem was with Eliza as a character because I felt like she was all joke and busy dialogue and very little actual personality. Hmm. Um, I felt like the actress had to do a lot of the heavy lifting when it came to just spitting lines really quickly and assigning emotion to them. Like, uh, all we know about her is that Timmy likes her and that she has a crappy husband, we're told. Like, I didn't think she had any sort of real distinction to her. And actually, I'm going to give that to Timmy as well. I, I love Randall Park, but I didn't think his character was anything exceptional or any kind of personality I could hang my hat on other than he's nervous and he's trying to keep his business afloat and he's into this girl that he can't get. Like, I didn't think the actual character was anything special. Um, I agree with that because there's this potential character trait of ineptitude. mm -hmm. And that just makes you feel bad for a character, not necessarily make you connect with a character. So I fully get that. Right. It didn't feel like either of them had distinct personalities. It felt like they were functions of script and story. And um, I don't know if you can really blame the actors for that, but at the same time, there is some fault there. You know, look, nobody's perfect, okay? Uh, (laughs) Same with my opinions. Um, This is one of those shows, John, and we've had a couple other ones like this where it felt like it was happening to me. Mm. I never felt like I could stop and see it for more than it was, which was a lot of jokes packed into 30 minutes roughly. Uh, There was just a set that they were on mostly in a series of sets that they were on. You know, I never felt like we were in a small Michigan town, Mm -hmm. even though we were told that like, it felt like it wanted to be Parks and Rec, and it wasn't, um, and it was a lot busier. I did watch some of the episodes a second time because we watched the show a couple weeks ago and had to postpone a record, and then when we came back to it, I was like, ah, I got to be refamiliarize myself, and there were jokes I caught the second time that I appreciated a bit more now that I understood the characters more because I'd seen the whole show, but upon the... F- first watch it really just washed over me like a wave that i felt held down by i don't know gotcha john what about you would you renew i would not not renew that is to say i would renew wow yeah so whereas this felt like a wave that was holding you down i was on the upside of that wave. It was pushing me back up to the surface. I fully agree mostly with everything that you just said. That being said, I love a good joke machine. I do. 
mm-hmm. and especially a joke machine that is about movies. Like, I love that. And I, yes. there are so many things about this show that frustrated me in terms of everything that you just said, uh, giving the characters enough room to breathe, making sure that it's not so conflict heavy and just letting the people breathe and the environment speak for itself. And I think if they leaned into that, it would have been a great show. As it was, I thought it was a good show and I thought it was a good time. I really laughed out loud a lot, especially a few just sort of key lines and things. I'm not going to go into Linorama here, but there were some things I was just like, oh, that's such a good line. And moments where I was genuinely connected to some of the characters. The one big thing I disagree with, though, is I really did like Eliza. And I think that might be my Melissa Fumero goo-goo eyes that I have for her as a performer. Yeah, I'm not really familiar with her otherwise. You never watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Not really, no. I mean, I've caught episodes, but I haven't watched it enough to remember anything beyond Andy Samberg and Terry Crews. Gotcha. I think that she brings a lot of humanity to what could typically be a type A stereotypical character. And I think she elevates that. And I really liked particularly, I mean, really everyone except for Kayla and Percy. I think if we had done without that. did not fit in here at all. No, not even a little. He is not equipped to spit fast, clever lines. That is not his vibe and it's not where he thrives. No, it is not. I think that J.B. Smoove is a great voice when it's his voice, but when he's utilizing somebody else's voice, it feels very forced. Mm. And I felt this with a few sort of roles that J.B. Smoove has appeared in, you know, over the course of his career. And this being sort of a shining example of that, again, disconnect. Mm -hmm. That being said, I enjoyed it enough where I would want to see more. And I think there were just a couple key areas that if they tweaked the vibe here and there, that it really could have been elevated. And I felt that frustration at times. But then once I felt that frustration, there was another line that kind of sucked me back in. Mm. And that was the sort of wave that I was riding. So it's one of those things. I totally get why this does not work for people. It was reviled when it came out. Horrible reviews. Yeah. And so I was really mean. like, oh, God, here we go. Jeez. But it it won me over. And I think that that is a feat when I go into something with such low expectations and actually come out of it smiling. Sure. And, uh, okay, I think we're kind of on the same page, even though we, you know, you gave it thumbs up, I gave it thumbs down, is Mm -hmm. I wrote down uh, a joke that, here's a joke at its worst, this show at its worst. (laughs) Um, It's Eliza and Timmy talking. And Timmy goes, I mean, look at me. Tomorrow my mom's forcing me to tech her church production of the vagina monologues. Eliza goes, that's why you have an inflatable labia on your car? And he goes, I've been turned down by six therapists. And... Two episodes later, we meet his parents, and this joke doesn't really fit his mom's personality at all. No, not even a little. Right? It's a joke that they wrote 
and then had nothing to do with the actual character when we meet them. And that happened multiple times. Yeah, I get that. Like, there's another thing where we hear that Eliza's daughter is a musician and Eliza is playing this uh, her daughter's CD like in the store. And Kayla's the one because Kayla always points out the negative in anything that Eliza's daughter is really singing terrible things about Eliza in the lyrics of the songs. And I wonder if we got the chance to meet Eliza's daughter, if they would have characterized her completely differently, even after we get that thing. So it's like it works in the moment, but you got to back it up because otherwise it's just jokes without any sort of connection. Right. but it it worked sometimes when they just sort of set it up and then forgot about it. Like there was one thing where Eliza's yelling at Timmy and she's like, you still have roommates. And Timmy responds, roommate, Garrett is still missing. And then that's a joke that happens in the background of the show throughout the season. Is <laughs> exactly. Like news stories about Garrett being missing or posters that are put up uh, about him. And that was funny. Like Such I, a good sort of like set it and forget it and sprinkle it in here and there kind of thing that I wish they would have leaned a little bit more heavily into those more. And I, I was a little t- surprised we didn't actually go on a hunt for Garrett at any point, though, because he is his roommate. But I kind of like that. I kind of like that. It's like, yeah, these characters, we, we're not going to know everything about them. But if we are going to go down that path, let's at least back it up. So I do have uh, two jokes that I wrote down that I really agree with you about. Like, when this show was funny to me, what they did well was make movie jokes, right? Yes. Like like a high fidelity where they're talking about specific music and they have very real opinions on them. You know, it's like a show like Blockbuster does need people who – know about movies to throw out pop culture references and make jokes and have opinions about them. So uh, like two I wrote down were, um, I think this is Timmy and Eliza also. And Timmy goes, he's a DP. DP means director of photography. And Eliza goes, please, there's no worse sound in the world than a man explaining film terms. I loved that line too. Yes. It's so true. And then another one that's a bit more pop culture was someone said, you can't just quit in the middle. This isn't season three of Empire, which <laughs> I didn't yeah. watch Empire, but I understand enough about it to get like that joke works on the surface. And it also works probably if you watched Empire as well. Right. Absolutely. One thing, though, that I would. One gripe I had about that sort of general vibe, though, again, was that I felt like they leaned into the negativity a little bit too much for those jokes. You sure. know, it was always this thing sucks. There's the punchline. This thing sucks. That's the punchline. I wish they had sort of talked about like other people's obsessions or passions or things like that. And I think we could have connected to characters like Carlos, for example, a little bit better. You know, somebody who seemingly loves movies and wants to be a filmmaker, but we don't really get to see much about what he grabs onto. We just hear more of his snarky takes on crap. Right. The closest we get to knowing that he really likes film is that there's a story arc where the local movie critic dies. Yeah. And Carlos is upset about it and does stuff. Uh, But enough about dead movie critics, John, as we will be one day. (laughs) 
Let's get to some Dunzo Awards. That's right. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to every show that we watch. It could be the best. It could be the worst. It could be a family video. It could be a Hollywood video, whatever it is. We have decided to give each of these shows their just desserts. Ian and I both have two Dunzo Awards to give out. And I'm going to go first with my first Dunzo Award because I don't think we're done talking about dead critics <laughs> yet. Because my first Dunzo is the best Roger Ebert stand-in and that goes to the character of Hollywood Herald, who is the film critic who dies and is clearly some sort of Gene Siskel, Roger Ebert type. They even have a sort of section in the Blockbuster store that they dedicate Hollywood Herald picks to, and they refer back to him throughout the season as they are, you know, gathering things from his, like, estate. Like, one of the things I liked about it was Timmy from this guy's estate sale got a plate that was the plate that uh, Hannibal Lecter served Ray Liotta's brain to him on in (laughs) Hannibal. And it was nice to have that sort of connection to local critics and recommendations and stuff like that. That's something that always drew me to video stores. It was such a huge part of my childhood as well was like, I would watch an episode of, Siskel and Ebert or Ebert and Roper, mostly Ebert and Roper because of my age. Right. And I would see the movies that they would recommend and I'd look and see that two thumbs up on a DVD box set or whatever it was. And it just, it gave me that little like twinge of nostalgia. And then to see Carlos, that character too, sort of grab him on and be like, we got to remember this guy. Like he is part of our community. He's something that really gave me a little bit more of my love for movies. That was just a character trait that I could personally grab onto, and I appreciate it. My first Dunzo Award is the Slap and Kiss Award, (laughs) which I'm giving out to two different storylines. I'm going to give a slap to the inventory storyline. It was just like busy and wasn't very fun. And there's a whole episode where the gang has to do inventory on all the blockbuster, all the DVDs that they have. And like, there's a joke that's made about how they opened up a La La Land case and there was just a loose piece of deli meat in there. So they need to. uh, And which one is better? That could be debatable. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And I was just like, I'd like La La Land. Dang it. La La Land is my younger brother's favorite soundtrack and album of all time. That includes all music ever. So, man. I would love to hear Kevin's opinion of Babylon, which is the same guy that scored La La Land. And to me, the Babylon score is better than La La Land. Oh, interesting. Um, And I'm going to give a kiss to... Building the display for the fake movie Thimble 2 (laughs) story arc, which I really enjoyed. That was fun. Yeah, it was mostly Connie really worrying about uh, 
there's a display that she has to assemble for this fake animated movie called Thimble 2, where I can't remember who plays the thimble, but then... um, Billy Porter is the city of New York. Exactly. Which, I don't know, was it the city of New York or just the city? But He is the voice of the city of New York. Right, which was so funny because we always joke about, oh, the city is the the fifth character of the show. Uh, much like in Blockbuster, the small city in Michigan that they live in is probably the 10th character. Um, but that was just a really fun episode that I thought took the, like, we work at Blockbuster, let's take this seriously, where fans of movies... And I also have a task that is realistic to the place that we work that would be very frustrating and also good hijinks to ensue because it's this like somewhat complicated electronic piece that she has to put together and she just does not understand. Yeah. And they also put a nice sort of ticking clock on that or like the take of the ticking clock because they had this guy who was kind of hovering around the display and he wanted to be the first one because part of this display was you needed to put your thumb in it in order to have the full effect of it and he was this like oncologist who like patients were waiting for him, but he wanted to be the golden thumb, the first person to put their thumb <laughs> in this display. And so it added that like pressure to Connie's character, but it was also just silly as hell. Well, and- I think it was a take on like the grown men that are huge fans of my little pony or something yes, like that. The bronies. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I think it basically, there was a brony hovering around putting pressure on her while she was like, this should be easy, but it was really frustrating. Mm-hmm. And also, it was one of the rare moments that I thought they brought in a quirky character from the town that I thought really worked with the the quirky story that was going on. They did not bring the rest of the town in enough, I felt like. They Agreed. tried, and there were only a couple times where I felt like it actually hit, and that was one of them. John, what is your second Dunzo? My second Dunzo award goes to the real enemy that sparked the downfall of Blockbuster. And that goes to Amazon, according to the show, not Netflix. So I don't know if you remember, but the beginning of the show, the pilots, the whole thing is, okay, now they're the last Blockbuster. Corporate has shut down. And... They need to throw some sort of big block party in order to spur memberships and remind people, oh, we're still here. We're still vital. We are now a small business. And the block party goes awry. There's fireworks that destroy a giant balloon. And when the local news coverage comes, they're interviewing Timmy about the sort of chaos. And at some point he says, you know, I just feel like this is the kind of thing that this community needs right now. You know, Amazon is the one to blame because we don't get to know people anymore. And that's Amazon's fault. And I was just like, oh, Netflix, come on. We all know it was you. You don't have to put up this false flag over in Seattle. We know we're literally watching you to watch this person say this. 
come on. Come on. And that just spoke to the sort of weird, prickly, problematic nature, I think, of a show like this being on Netflix. I don't know. What do you think? It was just some weird brand warfare. I mean... (laughs) Yeah, I do think if we're going to compare evil empires, Amazon is much worse than Netflix. Yeah, like I would Netflix agree with that. takes our time, but Amazon's streaming service is only one of the many, many things they do. And there was a, a tweet out there when the Lord of the Rings show came out that was like, this is the first time that if a show tanks, the price of your laundry detergent is probably going to go up, you know? <laughs> So I I do think that Amazon is a much larger evil empire than Netflix, who they're just trying to keep us paying their monthly subscriptions and, um, you know, take up our time by making entertainment. Amazon is, you know, has a, a tenfold strategy to take up our time and get us to, you know, buy things with that attention, you know, Mm -hmm. so very different, very different. Uh, that's why we are going to make sure that we are in stealth mode when we are putting out this episode because they will find us. Ian, what is your second Dunzo? Mine is the Red Bag of Doritos Award, John. Oh my God. Which goes to Bobby Moynihan. It's a red bag of Doritos. It's not a blue bag of Doritos. Nope. But this show in two different episodes gives the red bag of Doritos prominent screen time. One episode is where they uh, don't get a shipment. I think of like movie specific candy. I got it. They can't pay their vendors or Timmy can't pay their vendors. And so the person who's delivering the snow caps to the blockbuster, it is mistakenly putting snow caps next to a red bag of Doritos. You got it is saying, you know, oh, you can't pay us. Well, we're going to take our snow caps back. And the vendor is basically yelling at her husband, who is mistakenly placing snow caps next to Doritos because that's akin to merchandising blasphemy. Right. And uh, then the second time is Bobby Moynihan was my favorite part of this show. He was great. And I can't believe that they took 10 episodes to finally have a guest star of that caliber on it because his character was a, uh, a child who was in a famous Christmas movie. And I think the Christmas movie was called, but I'm too young to be Santa. Nailed it. So then it's him as an adult coming to blockbuster to be this like special guest so that people could line up to get his autograph, but he's jaded and older and drunk the whole time. And at one point, Really chowing down on that red bag of Doritos, John. <laughs> and why do I point it out? It's because this is the third, possibly fourth show that we've watched where Doritos has had a heavy product placement involved in them. And I think all these shows have been filmed in the last year and a half, two years. I'm going to keep the movie The Number 23 away from you because <laughs> I think this is the beginning of a dangerous dangerous spiral that there you is a Dorito conspiracy on. john oh god he just shook his fist like stalin when are you gonna come to terms with that hey 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 no i'm more like dwight when he's talking yeah. like mussolini in the office 
I, yeah. I, I mistake my dictator sometimes. I apologize. As we all do. Speaking of mistaken dictators, let's take a quick commercial break and talk about why this show was canceled when we come back. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is Ian Hamilton, your co-host of One and Done TV, asking you to please write us a review, give us a rating on whatever podcast platform you use. John and I work extra hard to give you the research, the friendship, the opinions, some comedy, and to give light on this subject matter that we love so dearly. Please be sure to help us out. And now, enjoy the show. John, this has to be the clearest reason that we've ever been given for a streaming service as to why it was canceled. Oh. I'm just straight up going to read this. um, (laughs) I'm just straight up going to read this article by Joe (laughs) Otterson written on Variety because he sums it up completely. Joe Otterson says, The cancellation of the series is not altogether unexpected. Blockbuster failed to break into the Netflix top 10 rankings in the U.S. upon its debut and in the first full week after its debut. Per Netflix, it only reached the top 10 in two countries, with those being Australia and Canada. It also failed to find much support among critics, with the show managing a meager 23% critical approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And another reason why I wanted to read this article is because I think he sums up my thoughts on it really well, actually. Oh, wait. Actually, he quotes another Variety article. (laughs) So these are Caroline Fromke's thoughts on it. For as hard as its upbeat music and capable actors try to sell it, Blockbuster struggles to land on a comedic temple all its own. Each character ends up talking in the same self-referential way that smooths out any meaningful differences between their personalities. Plus, without the necessary editing that airing on a broadcast network would have imposed, each episode the Netflix show drags on several minutes too long for its material, dragging Mm -hmm. out scenes and jokes that would have been sharper, given a more discerning eye. So, pretty cut and dry reasons as to why it was canceled. And I think that that review encompasses my thoughts almost entirely on the show. Mm -hmm. I do definitely see that. And yet, I'm still here for it. I get it. (laughs) I understand that there are a lot of solid jokes about movies in this show. And I could have seen you going either way. If the jokes didn't land, I wouldn't have liked it. But they did. Yeah. And there were solid movie jokes in there Mm -hmm. i think they just tried too hard to sell us plots we didn't care about with characters that were not like the review said different or discerning enough for us Uh uh-huh the jokes are solid i think the note about editing in particular resonates and i think it's one of the big reasons why the most successful sitcoms I feel like on Netflix are the most akin to a traditional network sitcom. I think about the sitcoms that get renewed immediately 
or that have had some sort of lasting impact. Uh, you know, like that 90s show got renewed within like two weeks. I know. And crazy. Crazy. And again, that's based on a past IP. So it definitely had that sort of traction behind it. But there's been so many, I think, failed attempts by Netflix to mirror the network sitcom and bring in that kind of all-purpose audience. But they tend to have either too much edge or too long of a runtime, I think, to get people coming back. Because the thing about the network sitcom is that it is mass appeal. It is something that will go across the demos and draw a bunch of people in because it's comfortable and like for example the last episode of blockbuster has a swear word in the title of it or you know they're calling people dick bags all the time as you pointed out to me as like beforehand and they just have like something that's a little bit too mature for broadcast but not like so mature that it has a kind of cultish you know potential subversive following to it it toes the line between the two to not really get at i think either target demo that the blockbuster creative team or just netflix in general is trying to go for i think you nailed it on the head there and i'm really glad you brought it up because There were times when it felt like, oh, I know what this is. This is like a family sitcom. And then it would get like kind of sexually risque. You know, there'd be a swear thrown in. There would be scenes where a fireman unnecessarily says the term uh, dick bags, you know, many times in a sentence. And it's weird. I think actually in a good way, that's taking advantage of the medium But in a bad way, that is probably pushing away an audience that otherwise you would have had. Yeah, the thing about streaming services from their inception, from when Netflix started doing its own streaming content, was that it was going to be the bastion for creativity that anyone who was shunned away by the network and cable systems could do what they wanted and with no regard and Netflix would throw money at them and everyone would praise their work. But you know what? Sometimes you need structure and sometimes you need perspective and sometimes you need a point. And when you have that and when you have people pushing back, then you get something that does feel truly collaborative and therefore I think is elevated. And I get the whole notion of the network executive that is going from their high tower and basically burning their lit cigars on the lowly writers and forcing them (laughs) to appeal to the mass demographics. And I don't think that that's it. It's probably still happening for sure. There's people in power who should not be in power for many reasons. One of them being, their creative ineptitude. But I feel like streamers had been built on this sort of, it's the creator first. But I think the best executives are the ones that know when to push back a little bit in order to deliver the best product and make sure that somebody's voice is being fully realized. And maybe in this sort of 
new era that we're entering with streaming where executives are going to be a little bit more frugal, a little bit less willing to just throw money out there and see what happens. Maybe we'll get that greater collaboration across genres. But for now, we get something like Blockbuster, which I get that people don't like. I still liked it. I had a good time with it. But yeah, the episodes could have used two or three minutes of trimming. I think you make really good points about executives and what their positions should be. One thing I want to touch on that you just talked about too is editing in comedy because I can't tell you exactly what the line is, but it's a fine one between too quickly edited and not giving comedy enough space to breathe so that people can take in the joke and laugh because there are fast witty comedies that I enjoy where there are a million jokes a minute that totally work. And there are other ones like this where it feels like it's moving too fast for me to fully enjoy the jokes that I would have otherwise enjoyed, if not already buried by two more jokes right afterwards, you know? Mm -hmm. I can't tell you what the line is, but I know there is one. And editing with comedy is so important. Um, Before we go, I want to touch on a very interesting one and done situation going on. So there's the show Willow on Disney Plus starring Warwick Davis, which was just announced to be canceled after its first season. And it was also based on a movie from, I think, the early 90s, a fantasy movie that was directed. It was one of the first ones by Ron Howard, I think. Yes, late 80s. And it was a collaboration Mm -hmm. between Ron Howard and and George Lucas, I believe. Right. uh, Mm -hmm. At least produced it, if not had something to do with the story. A kind of famous failure of the time, too. Right. And so this was just announced to be canceled and to be one and done. But the creator of the show just put out a really interesting explanation. So the show is not canceled. They actually have two parts left that they want to tell, but the actors have been released from their contracts for the next 12 months Hmm. to pursue other opportunities before they actually do any kind of season two. Hmm. Very similar to Why the Last Man in the way that Why the Last Man had to cancel its run because the actor's options ran out and they didn't think that they were going to have enough momentum to get them to renew a second season. Right, which I have to think is part of why Succession and Barry are both ending. I mean, they both kind of have natural endings coming in season four. But do you think there's any part of it that, you know, COVID killed some of the time where they were under contract? So Succession and Barry may have ended a season earlier than than otherwise. It's just a feeling I have. I think it's more of a thing where the creators were like, we are reaching a natural conclusion and we'd rather not stretch it out just to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Like that was a big thing with The Good Place, too, where NBC was fully behind it. They're like, we'll make as many seasons of it as you want, Mike Schur. And Mike Schur was like, we found a great place to end it. And so we're just going to end it here. And 
they did, and it was met rapturously, including by me. So I think that there is more of that happening too, where, but I guess this does play into what you're saying in that people like Bill Hader or Jeremy Strong or whoever is involved in these sort of higher tier shows that are ending potentially earlier than people might've wanted, they've got other options out there. And so their contracts sort of really, if they're going to be renewed, they would have had to shell out a lot. Choo choo all aboard the pony express. So let me read uh, what John Kasdan had to say about Willow. He said, a decision was made last week to release our main cast for other series opportunities that may arise for them in the coming year. With all the TV and movies in production around the world, it feels unfair to limit any actor's availability without a clear sense of when you're going to need them again. It's further trivialized by the simple reality that the scripts we've been working on require just as many actors from our first season with whom no such contractual hold exists. Nothing prevented Annabelle Davis, for example, from taking another show, but you better believe Mims appears in every single volume two chapter. Okay, so that's a little Willow specific, but here we go. (laughs) If you're asking what this means for you as a viewer or me as the creator, here's what I think it means. Due to forces much larger and more intricate than I would ever pretend to fully understand, Production of streaming shows is slowing down across the entire industry and Willow won't resume filming in the next 12 months. But here's what's equally true. With the enthusiastic and unwavering support of Lucasfilm and Disney, we've developed and written what we hope is a brain-melting, fun, richer, darker, and better volume two, which builds on the characters and stories of our first eight chapters. So streaming as a business is in flux right now, right? Disney's lost all this money. Warner and Discovery have lost all this money. They have all this debt that they've compiled. They're trying to figure out what the future is as they're trimming the fat and they're figuring out a new way to forge, uh, you know, the future of the next four or five years of streaming. And shows just are not being built where they can film year after year, eight, ten 12, 13, 20 episodes every single year because that's not the stories that we want anymore, right? It just takes time creatively and in this new business world that we're going into. It's very interesting. We can't just assume that something is going to work and so therefore we're not going to greenlight something ahead of when it premieres as much uh, too. And because, for example, we have an entire season that is airing over the course of, you know, at max, like week to week, uh, we're not as much into the 22 episode seasons that go from September to May, where we see how word of mouth builds, how things get traction. It's like, you have this finite period of time to see if a show works. And if it does, then we'll green light it and we'll start production on the next thing. But if it doesn't, then we've still got an out and you know, then it's just going to get canceled. Like I think about Mm -hmm. the last of us, which by pretty much any conceivable metric is one of the most successful launches of a new show in modern history. Like it doubled its audience over the course of its nine episodes. It had an amazing fan base 
that was talking about constantly critically lauded and they didn't renew it for a second season until episode four had aired. And so now they're starting to write the second season. They're going into production later this year. We're not going to get a season two of the last of us. Again, one of the most successful shows on TV currently until probably the end of 2024 at the earliest. Wow. So everything is getting pushed out because of everything that you or the quote that you just read said. Right. Um, any final thoughts on Blockbuster, John? I really liked Evan and Trevin, the two twins who would uh, prank the store. And whenever they would win at one of their pranks, they would just rub their nipples against the glass of the front of the Blockbuster. That was a weird, weird bit but I was here for it, honey. How about you? I also wanted to shout out a recurring character that never really had more than one line at a time. And it was this woman that would always eavesdrop on the employees. And then she would have something to say about their conversation and they'd all stand there in stunned silence. And then she'd ask a question about a movie and they'd all continue to stand there in stunned silence. And then she would like slowly back away. Yeah. And that character came in three or four times. It was a great change of pace. Great actress to pull off the joke. And also just a funny recurring bit that I really enjoyed. And I just yeah. want to shout that out. You're right. They just needed more people from the town to better build out this world. Yeah. I fully agree with what you said. Ian, where can people find us? Follow us at One and Done TV on Instagram, Twitter, Hive Social. The the one thing that lasted like a month that no one does anymore. Mastodon, uh, which I believe you called like Woolly Mammoth or something on the oh, last Oh, I think episode. I called it Mammoth. Yeah, that instead was of Mastodon. Yeah. Shows how much I post on there. Um, <laughs> and then actually, you know, the YouTube stories, I think it's kind of interesting. I have some plans for... Uh, how to keep putting out, you know, a little TikTok bite content. Uh, but again, that's all to draw people to listen to the podcast. So if you're already listening to the podcast, Woo-hoo. you don't actually have to have to do any of that. Because <laughs> if you're here, then you're family. Aw. Uh, what restaurant is that? Olive Garden. <laughs> yeah, fatten up on all you can eat breadsticks and one and done TV shows to butter it with. Had it last night, and my digestive system is still reeling. Is that true? Yeah. Email us, oneanddonepod at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts about Blockbuster, why they should have made a Hollywood video show, Mm. uh, why that would be a much better premise for a TV show, and how it should be a deep drama with a lot of room to breathe and very little dialogue. (laughs) Make it real experimental and existential. Oh, yeah. Honestly, we should do it. Okay? Like, support (laughs) our Kickstarter. We're going to make a Hollywood video drama, uh, and it's going to have a lot to say about society. Also, um, one... Oh, and email us any suggestions that you have for the podcast. Okay? Email us them. We can't keep track of the messages. Because otherwise, we will be doing things like what we're doing next week, which is watching the... Short-lived reality dating show, I Want to Marry Harry. About oh Prince boy. Harry. Prince and the guy Harry. That's not actually him. Nope. 
trickery is afoot on next week's one and done. I have so many late fees that are unpaid. I remember one time Family Video begged us to come back. They were like, <laughs> we'll waive your $60 in late fees. Chip, chip, cheerio. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.